Diorschkortenziagen, and welcome to Shift F1, a podcast about speedy race cars. That, by the way, is German for the Austrian phrase, to pull the butt card. Wait, sorry, <laughs> German for the me? Austrian phrase? Yeah, it's the German language. Oh, but it's it only is, said it in Austria, basically. This is like... That's what the internet tells okay. me. Okay. Yes. Okay. Um, to pull the butt card means to have bad luck. Oh, man, uh, I pulled a butt card. I believe it's from soccer, the the ref taking the red card from their back pocket. That's true. That's true. Okay. Um, but uh, yeah, the, the whole rest of the F1 field has been having bad luck compared to Red Bull. But uh, let's see if things turn around at Red Bull's home track, huh? Uh, I'm Drew Scanlon. <laughs> joining you, Danny O'Dwyer. How are you, Danny? I'm good. Yeah, you've you've uh, you've spot you spoiler. That's what I'm going to get into when we do our track walk mm. uh, later on. Um, yeah, we're into a we're into a fun little European cycle here. We got a. I think we only have one week off between now and the the end of the F one. I guess the start of the F one break at the start of August. It's it's a back to back Euro races. So, uh, you know, I know you're a big fan of Eurovision, Drew. So you must mm. be loving this. Absolutely. Also joining us, Rob Zachney. How are you, Rob? Not too bad. Uh, you know, Austria's kind of moved up my power rankings of F1 F1 races, uh, you know, in recent years. So I, I genuinely am pretty stoked. Also, we always get the great photography. Yeah, it's beautiful. Indeed. Uh, well, if you're new to this podcast, a very warm welcome to you. And if you are new to Formula One itself, we have an episode just for you. Uh, our preseason primer assumes no prior F1 knowledge and explains how the sport works and who everybody is. So if you'd like to go back and listen to that and get caught up, uh, it's episode 216. Also, the show is supported entirely by our audience over at patreon.com slash shiftf1, where every month we release bonus podcasts and videos exclusively for our patrons, covering racing documentaries and films, F1 video games, experiments with other racing things, and a lot of weird things. So if you... Did I say racing things? Racing, racing things. series. <laughs> and racing things. Racing uh, things. So if you like to support the show and get access to all that fun stuff, head over to patreon.com slash shiftf1 or click the link in the show notes. Uh, it's like it's like I'm a game show host saying the rules. You know, this, it's like one <laughs> long word uh, about Patreon. Uh, but speaking of that, what's going on this month in <laughs> Patreon land, Danny? That's it's, it's like me with the title sponsors. Um, no, I'm, I'm very excited about this next... Um, uh, this next uh, episode of the Patreon exclusive podcast. It's going to be a week later than we originally planned. It'll be out next week. Uh, we just had a lot going on, all of us. Uh, Rob had to start a new job at his old job. <laughs> Drew's been working hard on video game stuff. Um, I was trying to launch a video game, uh, a driving video game, actually. I never once mentioned Stunt Derby on this podcast this entire yeah, time. let's cross remote baby what an idiot i am it's like <laughs> wishlist now thousands of guests check out stunt derby on steam we should do a little play test i should get you guys in on it yeah um but uh uh yes yeah, so we'll have it out next week i am very excited about what the patrons voted for uh the options on the table were the crew which got 25 percent that was the uh the nascar sitcom yes which uh thank the good lord uh we did not land on <laughs> Um, <laughs> dual uh, with twenty one percent. Go fast, risk everything, which is in all caps. What is that? My autobiography. Uh, that is, yeah, a Ken Block biography. Oh, interesting. Okay, yeah. is it new? Uh, it came out, I think, in the in twenty twenty two. It was about uh, their like championship run. Oh, I think. Yeah. Okay, but it was before. Okay, all right. Yeah, that got fourteen percent. But bringing it at home with 40%, uh, 
uh, a movie that Rob Zachney has only just in recent hours realized is directed by Steven Soderbergh, Logan Lucky. I uh, so uh, Magic Mike is one of my favorite Soderbergh movies. Like I genuinely think that movie is just like pitch perfect. Every performance on in it is incredibly dialed in. And Agreed. so when I saw this, I was like, "Wait, this is this is Tatum. This is Soderbergh. Adam Driver is in it." Like this is Daniel Craig. This is Hillbilly Oceans. It is one hundred percent Hillbilly. And I was Oceans like, how, how, how did I not trip? know of this? How am I finding out years later? I, I, I put the trailer on, and MK was like across the room, and she was like, "What is this? Are we going to go see that?" <laughs> and I'm like, "No, because the time to go see it was like six years ago, but we're going to watch it." It yeah, it was uh for me. It was one of those like. Thursday night, my wife has gone to bed early movies, and I was like, eh, I'll give it a go, and then was just enthralled. Like, when you go in with zero expectations, I think this movie does really well. Uh, especially because there's Daniel Craig with like a, I don't know, is it a Tennessee accent? Or, he's, it is It is proto-Benetois Blanc is what yes. it is. Benoit. Have you, so you've seen it as well, Drew? Benoit, yes. Uh, I have, yeah. Oh, good stuff. We're gonna have so much fun with this one. I cannot wait. I'm I'm dying to see it again. Um, yeah, so that'll be a lot of fun. Uh, massive thanks to, to all of our incredible title sponsors: Cyphers Training, Turf SCS, Alex Medina, Kick a Hat of the Arsh at Team Blackjack, Michael Maves, Gordy's Army at Talking Autos, Olivia Evans, Ironstation.dev, TelemetryDeck.com, FTC, Drew Stewart, Bailey Foot, Abdullah Althani, Jason Chadwick, Abraham Getchell, The Space Above Us. That's a podcast that uh, JP, one of our patrons, it runs. is. It is, yeah. If you like NASA, it's about NASA. It's not about what else is above us. Clouds, birds, the good Lord. Uh, it's not about those things. It's about NASA. <laughs> Bunny Crimes, Snigs, Alex Goucher, Max Faltar, Circuit Demon, Troy Stammer, Umberto Roca, William Romph, Irvine, Clinical, Research, Lachlan the Madden Man, and of course, Jason Kelly. Indeed. And those are our title sponsors. Thank you, everyone. Uh, thank you, everyone. Thank you, everyone. Hey, everyone. Hey, everyone. Not just people listening. Hey, everyone. Thank you. Danny, thanks you. <laughs> Thank you, too. Thanks, Rob. <laughs> uh, well, let's jump right into the news ahead of uh, Austria here. We've pulled uh, a number of, uh, speaking of heists and money, um, a lot of money-related <laughs> news going on. You're right. And, and movies and actors. <laughs> Danny, why don't you take this one at the top here? Yeah, I guess um, not 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 satisfied with um, ruining the competition in the lower leagues of English football. Oh wow, is that how <laughs> we see it? <laughs> no, I actually really like these guys, and I'm really happy for Wrexham, um, and I love the series. But I couldn't help myself. Uh, Ryan Reynolds and Mom, Rob McElhenney uh, are investing in Alpine, or rather, they are sort of the front of a uh, investment group that has. Uh, purchased a sizable chunk of Alpine. Um, it's interesting. There's there's an article in The Athletic all about this, and it doesn't really add up to much else than sort of what you might assume. F1 is uh, a hugely profitable sport in a very short period of time. The US market is clearly a really important one, and it turns out for teams like Alpine, it might be even more important. Because these are companies that basically look at the American market, uh, see how little penetration they have, and I guess have the most to gain 
from uh from i guess exposing themselves to that market this is part of the reason alpine was or Renault was rebranded alpine in the first place um they're also expanding into uh other american racing series over the next couple of years they're planning to um and uh by the looks of things this is uh uh just a strategic sort of thing for them to have uh, a bit more american um voices uh and experts at the table and while the article sort of uh, intimates that perhaps uh, Reynolds and McElhenney might be in a similar front of camera situation. It sounds like this is much more of just a diversifying the portfolio move than a our hearts are really in this and you're going to see Rob McElhenney, you know, doing another. There's already Drive to Survive, right? They don't need to do another series yeah. on. Well, welcome Alpine. to Rexman Better. Uh, but. Right. You know, also a very different sort of thing. But I was sort of surprised that if they were going to make hay out of the fact that these guys are involved, this would sort of be the moment. And instead, the press materials and the, you know, statements they released for it are pretty, pretty boring, to be honest. Like, even by the, like, I guess they're, they're, they're decently interesting by the standard of these sorts of announcements, but you would have expected these guys to be centered more in it as like characters and personalities. Cause that's kind of the whole point of, well, sometimes that's the point of the celebrity fronted investment group offers like Jay Z is going to own the uh, the Nets, for instance. Boy, did right. that not turn that turn out to not really <laughs> be true. And so that's that's kind of the point is that you put a face people like on what is frequently behind the scenes, the most soulless collection of capital, uh, you know, getting together to to buy a stake. And that's not what they did here. But the flip side is um Reading about this, these investment groups already have tons of ties to existing investment groups that are in other sectors in sports, like there's Fenway Sports Connections, which is Boston and I believe Liverpool, effectively. Um, So it's like, it is also this, sometimes like, if you follow this aspect of sports, doesn't it sometimes feel, Danny, like there's a handful of investment firms they're just like putting tendrils out across all of sport, but in places you can't see it. Like the, the teams yeah, are still it, there, it, but it's these dudes behind all these teams. And it used to be like individual billionaires for a while. I mean, it kind of still is. I mean, Arsenal's owner also owns like the Denver Nuggets that I think just won. Did they just yeah. win the? Yeah, and and uh, they've won. Yeah, so I think Arsenal's now the only. I think they've won a Super Bowl, the Stanley Cup, the World Series. Now um, his teams have. Um, Stan Kroenke, uh, whereas now more and more, you're, yeah, you're starting to see, like, I mean, in, in Europe and in soccer, the Saudi public investment fund is the big one where they just purchased Newcastle and, um, you know, not to mention the Saudi league itself, which is, you know, basically an entire public entity where they're, you know, they're basically the Saudi public investment fund has funded every team on the, on the roster. Um, but yeah, just the, yeah, I hear what you're saying. Like, more and more it's just like this consolidation and commodification of you know anything that makes any money whatsoever and especially when you're talking about the just the size of these funds like just how much wealth is you know at the at the tip of the pyramid in in so many um petro states which you're kind of used to because that's you know what happened there was one like family that owned all the oil fields or there was one bunch of oligarchs that managed to split up this com- this country before while no one was watching um but obviously in the West as well, where you just have so much money tied up in, um, you know, whatever type of, uh, you know, investment stuff, um, 
uh, so it's it's yeah it's I mean the live and uh, uh, the live stuff and PGA is kind of another version of that as well. It's becoming impossible to avoid it. Um, but yeah, I, for as a you you know you mentioned the fact that they're not front and center of this. That's probably also like a good play for them. The last thing they want to look like is this sort of like dog and pony show that just go around to different sports and tell yeah, the although, same story, right? Although Wrexham's been successful, right? Like. Uh, wouldn't you want to say like, hey, we're going to do this with Alpine uh, other so sponsors. Why don't you come on the in? The difference there is the reason the Wrexham experiment is so interesting is because Wrexham operates at a scale where they can, they genuinely run that team. They have like, they have money. Mm, and, right. Well, okay. Ryan Reynolds has money and Rob helps, <laughs> but they have the sort of money that they can pour into this team at this level and the decisions they make have a meaningful impact and they can like the choices they make basically can direct an entire football club they don't have we can take part in steering an f1 organization money and so i think that they would have to be sensitive to with Wrexham. it's it's reality tv presenting itself as a very very good documentary but there is a grain of truth to it if they leaned into this with alpine it would be fake and people would know that and that would jeopardize the Wrexham project i think Hmm. And if you're at a certain level of wealth, right, you have a broad portfolio and you don't need to be the one with your hand on the dial, right? Like you you operate at a scale in which you have people managing a lot of this stuff for you. When you look about Reynolds and McElhenney, that's like <laughs> emotional capital, right? That's like time and effort and like giving a crap. And you can't like... Dupli- at the end of the day they are still just two human beings and they can't possibly like replicate what they've done at Wrexham ad nauseum there's definitely like a hard limit to just how much you know time and effort and giving a crap and flying to games and flying to races and while you're still being a parent and a you know an actor and a whatever right so like I feel like they're probably already at a point where they can this seems like it's more of the the sort of uh the money side of things than the, you know, emotional buy-in side of things. Well, uh, speaking of investors uh, and F1 teams, Danny. What's yeah, the next one on I know another one. Here we go. So Hitech, which is a, a, a crowd uh, based in Silverstone, a racing team, which has, um, they started off from British Formula 3 and they've basically sort of, uh, you know, they're all over the place over the past 20 years, Formula 2, Formula 3, Formula 4. Um, they have submitted an application to enter the 2026 uh, F1 season. And this is all off the back of a Kazakh businessman by the name of Vladimir Kim, who has invested um, a bunch of money and purchased 25% of high tech in, um, in, in doing so. So this is a really interesting one because obviously we've talked a lot about the other teams that are attempting to get into um into the 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 season or into the sport rather and there's something about this one which feels a really old school to me you know it, it's like a it's like an engineering outfit a racing outfit in the uk um which has lower league sort of you know receipts i guess um not just in europe they also i uh, think are in formula asia and a bunch of other stuff um uh, getting a bunch of money and being part of the sort of like Silverstone clique as well. So they're sort of, they have more of an underdoggy nature, I think, than 
some of the other ones where you've got these large conglomerates coming in, like the Andretti bit or whatever, or ones that have like huge, um, you know, uh, brands behind them. Uh, this is this is a pure racing team attempting to get in. Um, in the press release that they uh, uh, put out, I got this from Autosport. Um, High Tech said that their ambition was to move was a move that would complete its single seater ladder and demonstrate that High Tech has all the right people, experience, resources to compete alongside the best teams in the world. So in one way, it's the inevitable endpoint of a team that has, over the past 20 years, expanded into increasingly competitive uh, formulas um, over the years. But also, Vladimir Kim, by the looks of it, you know, he's a Kazakh billionaire. Um, he's not the type of guy who is buying this team so they can win Formula 3. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. This is clearly a, a play for the big leagues. Well, the other thing that just leaps out of me there is like, I don't know how close the ties are between like, like, uh, like tycoons from Kazakhstan and the government. But like when you're talking about Kazakhstan, that, that is in many ways also kind of a, their status is kind of murky, but like, we do know that like, uh, Putin sent troops into Kazakhstan to intervene to support. I don't think you could quite call uh, the the president there a puppet, but it was like to support an ally. And so there's a weird element mm. too of, you know, this is at a time when sport has been trying to like really push a lot of uh, like Russian money and sponsorship right. out. And the high tech bid is underwritten by a country that is not like, you know. It's not Russia, but it's like Russian aligned. And I am curious the degree to which those like does this become a vector of capital um from like Russia back into other sports? I don't know. Uh but this is the one place where like, oh, this is getting now more adjacent to where sport was a couple years ago. Yeah, it is. You know, he's Kazakhstan's richest richest man. Um he owns its extraction, I think it's copper or something, I'm not quite sure. Um, yeah, it looks like it. So, so it's like, yeah, it's you know, <laughs> it's hard. It it is hard, you know, to look at wealthy people from, you know, petrostates that have ties to the sort of oligarchical way of doing things. Um, you know, with it without having some concerns of just that. a big race fan, of you know. But like, you know, but like, look what's happened with PGA. You know what I mean? Like. That's like that's in broad daylight. At a certain point, this stuff is just at the same time, like you said, where you know there are literal, you know, they're pulling the money out of um, other sports, like Chelsea with the Roman Abramovich stuff. Like he's an oligarch who had to sell the club when they when the the uh, invasion of Ukraine happened. Um, but at the same time, yeah, it's it's. But, you know, but I think the, the happening in broad daylight. The deal with like Saudi money though is you can be reasonably confident that. Saudi Arabia is not going to be exiled from the global financial system anytime <laughs> soon. And it does feel like the way things go, that could just happen to with, with anyone like too close to like Russia's orbit. Uh, and, and so be, you know, it's a, it'd be a slight concern if that is, if that is the money in your entire racing bed uh, that's going to support the team, that could be a slight source of concern, but it does, it, it does sort of seem like this is an organization that is, well positioned to make this kind of step um and this is just where the money is right now but yeah it seems yeah. like you know it's a it's, it's a credible bid uh but he's got deeper pockets than andretti 
Yeah, that's true. And uh, like, I'm curious to see how it goes because like it does not seem like anyone in Formula One wants more teams. No, and 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 in a way, I wonder will we eventually stop talking about so many of these bids because right now F1 is such a ticket, and especially when you're talking about this level of wealth, it is a no-brainer to basically try your hand at getting in. And if anything, and I know I keep bringing it up, but I think the thing that shocks me about the live PGA thing more than say, you know, uh, Man- Manchester City in the Premier League or what's happening with Newcastle or, or whatever, is that there's a, at a certain level, the money is impossible to uh like to beat with any sort of moral argument like they have bought golf and there was a moral argument against live but the whole thing was strategic to basically they set up this separate uh, league they gave people the type of money that is generational wealth that you just can't say no to it's impossible as an individual and it granted and allowed this- them to wear shorts and to, you can't say no to that either i didn't realize it was that also one of the <laughs> yeah that's so funny so like you know at a certain point it's like we're we're operating a level where you just the money is so powerful that you you have to just step back and have it crush you like i you know so i mean this guy though vladimir kim he's only number 607 uh in the world oh, that's nothing okay that's, sorry that's, yeah he's yeah 4.6 bill Come on, this guy's this guy's number one poor. in Kazakhstan, baby. Uh, but like, I do, I do kind of feel like we are not going to see an F one, a new F one team. Like, it doesn't feel like they want any of these bids. They do not want a new yeah, team. Yeah, yeah. Like they're going to throw put it in Roblox. They can because until cash out every single team that might potentially be able to be sold sells, and they've exhausted the market for easy easy injections of like you flipping the asset. I think they are going to oppose any sort of new team. Like, I think everyone who might be thinking about next set will be like, well, me first. Uh, you know, you're going to, if you want an F1, you have to pay me a billion dollars. That's the thing. So that's what I'm talking about is that if, that's, that's the money. It like, just like the individual golfers would live. Eventually, if some team wants to get in here and it's coming from that type of money, Someone like what they're what buying AlphaTauri. What does Gene? Well, that's the thing. Who who's going? AlphaTauri. Gene Haas, Haas has a price. Like, come on. Like, we know this. <laughs> he has. To, yeah. <laughs> like, like this is a man who doesn't want to spend money on repairing race cars in a racing series. Like, no, this guy is waiting for someone to show up and write a, write a check. Uh, and so yeah, yeah there, uh, this is a this is a huge this is a huge tension. Uh, and so yeah, like I'm interested in this in this bid process. I want more F1 teams, but the entire thing is engineered now to prevent that happening and yeah. to position current teams as kind of like rent seekers uh, in in this space. So it's yeah, it's it's a bit of a bummer. Well, speaking more about teams and money, um, James Valls, team principal of Williams, has been out there talking, um, being transparent uh, in a way that we don't often see with Formula One teams and certainly haven't seen with Williams recently. Um, And he's kind of been telling uh, the press about what he has found uh, coming into the team as the new uh, boss. And um, he's describing in this Autosport article uh, the, the, 
sort of the the lineage of uh, their design practice. So he says, when a, when a designer releases a part, um, it sort of goes into a black hole. And then there's emails going backwards and forwards between production to try to find out where their part is, how it's being upgraded, how big it is, and how long it will take. Normally, that would go in, in, into a digital system that can be tracked so you can actually understand what does the car get made up of. And bear in mind, there are 17,000 components, and by the time you have designers doing this 17,000 times, you get lost. So you have inefficiencies. Uh, the software to fix that, first of all, just to step back here, they don't have, they, they are literally just doing this over email. Yeah. 17,000 parts. They don't have a database. It's just like paper if and you're pen. good enough email with labels, not, you don't need a yeah, database. Yeah, see? Yeah, and bins. Um, he says the software to fix that isn't unfortunately, um, you know, a hundred pounds, but millions and even up to tens of millions if you get it right. So, this is all to say and to sort of illustrate that the cost cap hit Williams at a really bad time. Right. Because the richer teams were able to see it coming, then spend a bunch of money on infrastructure before the cost cap arrived. But Williams at that time was just trying to stay afloat. And so they don't have now the headroom to invest in structural stuff like that. And so, uh, as Val says, um, the cost cap itself is split into two things. There's the operational cost cap, which is about $145 million, which everyone knows and talks about. Perhaps more hidden than that, there's CapEx, capital expenditure uh, version of the cost cap. And that's around, uh, it's a bit complicated, but $36 million spread across four years. But if you like, every year you can spend six or seven of that if you just do it fairly equally. So, uh, and then now quoting from the Autosport article, that's why we're currently in the middle of a debate about an adjustment to the CapEx limit mm. that is designed to help teams like Williams um, that fell behind in terms of infrastructure to catch up uh, with a decision to be made over the Belgian Grand Prix weekend at the end of this month. Exactly how that extra allowance will work is not yet clear. Um, and the other thing about this is that because it has to be even, it will also go to the front runners. Right. Okay. Right. And I saw that like their theory, the, 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 the article kind of quotes that like the idea is, well, since all those teams invested in their infrastructure, they're, they're kind of satiated in terms of their equipment needs. So like they won't really like know what to do with the CapEx. I don't believe that for a second. That's I don't think that's God. real. Like, I think that they will find, they will find places for that money to go. Um, now it might not be as impactful as sort of like the gap narrowing stuff that Williams wants to do. Gap narrowing might be generous. Like, I don't know that having an, inven <laughs> an inventory management database, is necessarily going to be the, the silver bullet, but something that cl they clearly need. But yeah, it, uh, Relaxing the CapEx limits seems like this is how like Mercedes and Red Bull end up turning into real estate companies effectively is they just start investing in land and leases on facilities that they're not using. <laughs> uh, but the, the other part of this, though, is credit, I guess, to James Valls for going on this PR tour of let me tell you about how messed up Williams is. Anyone who will listen, this is the second week in a row where James Valls, maybe third week, where James Valls has had some other little nugget of like, 
let me tell you about the, the crap I found when I opened the fridge at Williams. Let me tell you what happened <laughs> when I turned on the lights in this room. And there's a bit of, like, obviously this is politicking where he's demonstrating, like, this is why this team needs this capital investment, uh, like, limit right. adjusted. Yeah. But also, he is, he does just seem like someone who is interested in being really frank about, did you catch him when they were, they always interview different team principals uh, during race weekends. Did you catch the one where he, this was, like, two races ago, he was the guy they were talking to. And he was one of the most frank guys talking about what the teams know about how tires perform in, I want to say it was, might have been Spain, might have been Monaco. But he was like giving really detailed answers about just like tire dynamics at this track and like historic patterns. And it was really fascinating. And so to a degree, like while James Viles is in in this mode, and knows, I guess, that his team doesn't have a hope in hell of, you know, seriously taking the fight to anyone important. He's giving this really interesting look at, like, this is what's happening behind the scenes. Have you seen what's yeah. happened on the Williams YouTube channel over the past couple of months? No. No. So they didn't produce stuff for, like, much of this year, except they have this series called The Vows Verdict. And it's basically him doing like a super frank, honest breakdown of what just happened in the weekend. Oh, wow. Yeah. And they've done maybe three or four of these. And it's just like, hey, hey, what's up? <laughs> hey, hey, guys. Hey, guys, welcome to the channel. This is your boy, James. Um, <laughs> like it's, he's, it's, yeah, it'll be like, yeah, like he has here inside Alex's Canada P7, the Vows verdict. The Monaco oh, road trip. I, I will link to that in the show notes. Yeah, yeah, check it out. So, yeah, like you said, like he's doing the press tour, but he and Rosberg also get a collab. From... Oh my god, could you imagine? <laughs> Maybe that's who. Did you, did you see the one where Rosberg drove the uh, Ferrari F40 that he found oh, yeah. in one of his? And he's clearly terrified owned? of it. Yeah, like it was amazing. Rosberg's he wrote YouTube a note video on the guy's windshield is just a delectable mix of absolute cringe, like rich guy shit. And like really endearing, well, really endearing rich guy shit. It's kind of a mix. <laughs> yeah, it's good stuff. Uh, well, let's roll right into uh, your cost cap articles here, Rob, then. Okay, so I feel like we might have brought this up earlier this season. We were talking about uh, some personnel moves, people leaving the F1 teams and going to like the engineering divisions that various F1 teams have stood up. And I think we were talking about like these people are casualties of the cost cap and like it's sort of uh, unclear as to is there something a little untoward happening. It seems that the FIA have may have reached the conclusion that something untoward is happening because they were effectively mm. conducting a major audit up and down the F1 grid. Mm asking questions about what are all those racing engineers who are no longer in the racing department, but are across the hall in the engineering department. (laughs) What do they do here? What can you tell me about what your workday looks like? Because the FIA is convinced that these positions are bogus might be too strong a word, but they definitely are arguing that this is being used to do racing development and have employees like, turning the gears on racing problems and then 
like effectively exporting that internally from these engineering divisions back to the racing team without violating the cost cap. And explicitly, this is stemming from uh, they, they, they closed a loophole where basically you can have an engineering division. If the engineering division creates work product that is like used in the F1 racing program, that has to be charged against the cost cap, which wasn't explicit. Now it is. But this this broader ranging investigation they're carrying out, and it is an investigation. This is what it sounds like, is they kind of are crawling over these teams, asking questions about these like adjacent engineering programs. And it kind of feels like they're not digging the answers they're getting. It's it's it it's it's kind of funny that like there's a, any scuttlebutt around this because there's only been like a season of this and already one of the teams did break the cost cap. Like mm-hmm. this, I wonder, are they going to turn up at Red Bull and like open the canteen department and it's just a huge fucking wind tunnel in there and like, no, close the door, <laughs> close the door. Um, Yeah, I mean, it's funny, right? Like you'd wonder how much there has to be like some crossover between those things. There must be some departments where they're like fine with some crossover happens because well, i don't know like for some companies it's easier to be church and state than others you know well, what that's I mean? the like, thing red like bull is I mean, just red bull well so williams might be a bad example because remember they did explicitly spin off i think williams advanced technologies a few years ago right uh because they Alpine were might be harder, they were flat broke you know so they spun off like profitable divisions <clears throat> uh but yeah i think there's there's questions but like some of these teams i'm not sure they do have engineering departments that are like winning enough contracts or producing enough product to sell where they're viable organizations. Like they only work because they're part of an F1, a racing organization effectively. And, and right. so I think that's where a lot of these things are, these things are getting into trouble. This isn't like, um, I don't know what's the, what's the point of comparison. This isn't like uh general electric and 30 rock, right. Where there's always another division <laughs> that has like another eight product lines that you can go work on. Like yeah. that's just not how these teams are set up. So when you have a racing engineer, go over to their, you know, oh, this is our, you know, advanced materials division. Well, who are your clients? Oh, it's the racing team. <laughs> so I guess he's working on materials for, for car development. I, <laughs> I think, yeah, I, I think this is, um, you know, this is teams sort of like clawing at the walls of the cost cap and the FIA is, uh, is, is shutting it down. But you know what? I hate the cost cap. So I'm actually rooting for the cheaters. I think, like, wow. let the operators wow. operate. The heel turn. Uh, well, um, speaking of money, once again, it's a sport about it. Uh, ESPN has drawn, it seems, strong viewership recently. Um, this is from racefans.net from ESPN. Uh, three of... ESPN's four largest U.S. television audiences have come from the first races of 2023. Wow. If I'm reading this right. Um, the record was last year's uh, Miami Grand Prix, the inaugural Miami Grand wow. Prix. Uh, fake harbor and all. Mm. Uh, 2.6 million people watched. Um, this is that, year... Is that just because it was on the East Coast of America? So it well, just So, interestingly, the other ones... Uh, that are in this group, Canadian Grand Prix, right? This year, one point seven six million. Um, 
Miami this year, 1.96. And Monaco, uh, which was 1.79. And I think Monaco was middle of the day? Well, no. I think it was a, an sure, early were these figures one, but also it's like, counting you know, the ones that are broadcast on the major network, ABC? Probably. Because that's, that's the big thing, is like some of these races get broadcast on terrestrial TV. I think TV. all of these are. Yeah. I think uh, maybe not Monaco, because I think, no, maybe, I don't know, because you know, the Indy 500 is that day too, so I don't know if, if ABC oh, had course. stuff going on. That actually makes it more impressive. Um, I could go back and look at the Shift F1 Twitter. Um, yeah, I, I think though that the the real I'm bearing the lead here. They have numbers from Daniel Ricardo and Will Arnett's The Grandstand. Oh my goodness, a hundred and fourteen thousand people watched that. What? And how many of those were people who tuned off like after two minutes? <laughs> that I don't know. I would love to see the what YouTube, was the average session uh, length? Yeah, give me the yeah yes. exactly yeah. <laughs> watch time. Wow. Okay, it wasn't. It didn't. Totally. Really, that sounds like it totally bombed. Yeah, I mean that's five percent. No, yeah, uh, seven percent. I guess I would need to know what does the Manning cast do relative to Monday Night Football? Oh God, right? Like, yeah, that's kind of your benchmark or other ESPN two content. Yeah, you know. But was this this wasn't simulcast, right? This was the only way ESPN were carrying the race. No, it was it was simulcast. Oh, it was okay. Okay, they had the regular Sky feed on ESPN. Oh man, can you imagine? If they were just like, we're only doing the grandstand <laughs> right, for in. this race. All in. Oh, yeah. man. I hope the kids one is good. I hope the uh, Nickelodeon version. Oh, that that's they're right. Working on. Yeah. yeah. F1 is in such a weird spot, right? Remember, like, we were talking on the podcast like three or four years ago against all these, all these idiots that were buying F1 teams. We we're like, what are you doing, you idiots? <laughs> There's no money in this. Gene Haas, just what do you, you might as just go to Vegas for a weekend. Like what you dummies, what are you doing? And then like, God, I hope they, I hope they, I hope there's like good broadcasts of F1 in America. Cause the, you know, the app is not as broken, all this stuff. And now we're just That's in right. like this crazy world where every single billionaire in the world wants an F1 team. And we have, celebrities doing simulcasts of the races and we're complaining that only 110 people thousand people listen i'm not complaining about that i think it's very funny i I will say though i was thinking about this (laughs) f1's popularity has not correlated to it being a a better product you know what i mean like i'm not sitting here being like boy do i feel my experience of f1 is so enriched by its popularity and the various choices being made to like leverage that so there, there's kind of an odd thing where it's like, it's cool that more people are finding out F1 is cool. I'm not sure it's becoming a more cool sport uh, in, in, its overall, in its overall direction. Uh, there's, there's, there's two ways to cut that, right? There's, the, there's the, the, the glass half empty version, which is, this isn't good. Like if all these people are watching now and, and the game isn't, isn't, isn't good, like that's not a good sign. And then there's the glass half full version of, if we're having a stinker of a season and people are still entertained, well, like this is huh. this is the thing. Like the F one audience boom was forged in the fires of Mercedes just like sleepwalking to the championship year after year. <laughs> right. Like this is the weirdest thing about this entire like surge in popularity is Drive to Survive made people care about a sport that was never in <laughs> doubt, except for one year 
and then promptly it became even less in doubt than like maybe ever before because like Red Bull Red Bull <laughs> took took it back over. Uh, this it is an odd thing, but I guess maybe in the context of people love them Premier League, and as I understand it, and the Yankees. Well, yeah. Are the Yankees no, winning anymore? No. I don't know. They're always my well, go-to, but <laughs> my, my team almost beat Man City last year. Um, but the Patriots, no, no, Arsenal, they're not winning either. My boys, my good boys. Um, yeah. Well, speaking yeah. of Red Bull, should we get to Austria? Let's do it. Let's head up to the Styrian Mountains, if you will, on the foothills of the town of Graz, where Arnold Schwarzenegger was born. You can check out the Arnold Schwarzenegger Museum. While you're at the race, if you want wow. to, or and you know, I will on your when you're there, um, we're heading to the Red Bull Way Ring, previously known as the A1 Ring, previously known as the Ostreicht Ring, which means Austria Ring, just like our good friend Drew, our good friend Jason, Jason Ostreicher, absolutely, right. Jason Austrian. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um. So this was uh, originally built in 1970. The, uh, the I believe it's pronounced the Zeltweg airfield circuit was the previous sort of circuit in Austria that people went to, and then uh, that circuit, the airfield, was decommissioned and and um, uh, pretty hilly for an airfield. I'm surprised. I, yeah, well, it wasn't there. It was in a distant, different part of Austria. Oh, well, there you so, go. <laughs> so then, so then they built the Austrian ring. I'm not sure why they built it up in the middle of this beautiful plateau um uh, in the hills of austria um but it was done so then it had a bunch of races but it wasn't really um an f1 track until herman tilke got his hands on it and in 95 96 they did a big redesign of it and that's basically what it is now it was renamed the a1 ring in 1996 and then that's where we really started having um uh, more races there um it's a it's a short circuit there's 71 laps it's 4.3 kilometers which is just over two and a half miles um and it's 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 like the most simple track like it it, it feels like a go-kart track it's not very there's as short as it is it has even fewer turns because you can have monaco which is a short track but you're pretty much always turning a little bit like there's a there's one part of the track where the straight in the in the back end of uh or the middle part of sector two in monaco uh there is just a bunch of straights on this track um and you can largely divide the first half of the lap into this is the uphill part and then the second half of the lap is this is the downhill part <laughs> um it's almost like a slalom on the way down especially that middle sector uh, so there are uh, two, sorry, three DRS zones, and they are back to back to back. Uh, the first is on the start finish straight. Then there's a right hander. Then there's another big DRS zone the whole way up a big hill. Then there's a right hander. Then there is a third DRS zone. And what that means is that most of the overtaking you'll see at the, uh, I almost called it Ostrike doing, at the Red Bull ring is on the end of the second and third straights. Uh, confusingly, at the end of the second straight is turn three because for some reason they've decided that turn two is just this little bend that's in the, in the hill up the road. Um, and then turn four is the uh, the next one. Once you're past that, and turn four is where um, Albon and Hamilton um, had that coming together mm-hmm, at the end mm-hmm. of the race. You may remember when, when Albon was uh, fighting for his, his seat at Red Bull. 
once you're out of that, it's kind of tricky to do some overtaking. Bottas managed to do it at turn six, but that's kind of like the exception that proves the rule. Generally, once you're sort of there, you're into harvest mode. Uh, you're coming downhill. There's a couple of braking zones, but there's basically no proper slow turn on this track. Uh, the slowest they get is actually at the top of that hill at turn uh, three. And that's by virtue of the fact that it's just a super sharp turn with a kind of a hilly apex that you go over. Um, the rest of the turns are are super fast. So this is just like a little rocket. Like this this track, they just go, 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 go. And uh, as a result, there's not many obvious places for them to do uh, recharging. So they sort of go lap by lap when it comes to the deployment of their Urs stuff. Um, so yeah, it benefits straight line speed. So the Red Bulls are happy here. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and uh, they've always sort of been good here. But I, I think, you know, unless Max or Checo decide to go into the gravel, this this is about as well, much of a done deal, I think, for them as Checo as does that every year. Like That's Czech, true. Like, like, like Checo, it's turn three, right, where he, he's pretty convinced that he can go around the outside on this guy. <laughs> you're and right, every you're year right. we have the, like, is that legit? Is that in the rules? And so turn three, I feel like uh, last year it was, uh, yeah, Checo and Russell having the, you know, who provi- yes. who gives racing room, that sort of thing. So there's always, like, something I think I, like, I've come to appreciate about this track is... There are consequences for getting it wrong, but they are yeah. not race fatal ones. And so guys will try stuff, but it's not like if it goes bad, you're immediately in red flag territory or like full course caution safety car. So you, you like, I think at a time where a lot of tracks have ended up in this situation where it's so hard to pass or even contemplate a move that nobody even tries it really. Cause like, you know, the percentages are too bad or you lose too much time. Austria still feels like a place where over the course of a race, you're going to see guys convince themselves, like, I can stick it. Full send. Yeah, there's some, there's some, yeah, full send. There is something about that turn three, about the, the second DRS, because it's uphill as well, so, and it's so long. Um, I feel like the one thing that might be Checo's saving grace this week is just how powerful that DRS is. Um, that's true. Red Red Bull's straight line speed advantage hasn't like there's been nothing like it since the early years of the Mercedes hybrid. Hmm. So, but 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 I do think we will get overtaking. I don't think we're going to get famous last words, and I'll knock on wood here. But I, for some reason, I I don't think this is a track where we're going to see um, the DRS train issue. I for I think people will go wide on each other and even just get out of the air going up that hill. And and there is different, you know, because it's sort of like off camber, it's like a weird little, up the, the right-hander, you can barely see it actually, uh, where the track is. And because they're attacking going down into turn four, they do often take different lines and break at different points there. So, and it's wide, it's a wide track too. So I, I, I am optimistic that we will see overtaking in that sort of part of the track. But, but I am also fairly um, sure that Red Bull should make it an easy an easy one too if they as long as they don't do something silly famous last words well the track may be simple but the weather looks complicated oh well Um, then i everything i said has a big asterisk when it comes to the weather's (laughs) messed up yeah so this is a sprint weekend 
Oh. Yes. So Second on asterisk. Friday uh, is when qualifying will happen. Mm. Uh, and at qualifying time, the temperature looks uh, just just fine, 75 degrees Fahrenheit or 24 Celsius. But precipitation, 80%. We get scattered showers wow. uh, on Friday. Light wind, however. Uh, on Saturday, the where the sprint shootout and uh, the sprint will happen, um, we've got temperatures in the low 60s. Um, or if you're Celsius, uh, around 16 or 17 Celsius, uh, and precipitation starts high, um, around, uh, the shootout time, 84%, and then drops around the sprint to 48%. So not, not nothing. Right. Um, uh, Sunday though, uh, a little less precipitation looks to be about 24%. Uh, at the time of the race, uh, but back up to the warmer temperatures of uh, 73 Fahrenheit or 23 Celsius. So that, that's interesting because then that means we could have a messed up rainy qualifying like we had in Canada, and that's for the main race, right? Friday qualifying yeah. is for Sunday, right? Correct. Yeah. So who knows? Uh, heading into the weekend, though, the driver standings look like this. Max Verstappen is on top with 195 points. Sergio Perez's teammate has 126 Fernando Alonso uh, in third place with 117. Lewis Hamilton in fourth with 102. And Sainz in fifth with 68. George Russell right behind him with 65. Charles Leclerc has 54. Lance Stroll has 37. Esteban Ocon has 29. Gasly in 10th place with 15 points. Behind him, we've got Norris with 12. Albon with 7 after his Canadian Grand Prix uh, heroics. Hulkenberg has 6. Piastri and Botas are tied uh, with five points. And then in 16th place, we've got uh, Joe with four, Sunoda and Magnuson with two, and then DeVries and Sargent with zero. In the constructor standings, Red Bull Racing is on top with 321 points, Mercedes in second with 167. Uh, Aston Martin is closing in with uh, 154 points in third place. Ferrari's in fourth with 122. And then a jump down to Alpine in fifth with 44. McLaren is in sixth with 17. Alfa Romeo has nine. Gene Haas and team have eight. Williams has seven. And Alfa Tauri with two. Mm. Uh, if you'd like to join the standings yourself, you could do so with our, in our Fantasy League using the link in the show notes. Um, should we take it to emails, Rob? Absolutely. Uh, our first one comes from Colin from Canada with a little PSA for anime. Uh, Colin writes, <laughs> with the Redline podcast happening, I thought I'd bring you some news from the world of motorsports anime. Normally, Ooh. there's nothing happening in that space. But recently, two new shows were announced with some level of uh, backing from the Japanese racing industry. The first, Overtake, Amazing. is about Japanese Formula 4 racing and race photography. Notably, it's being created oh. by Studio Troika and much of the leadership team who created Mecha, Mecha Anime... Uh, gosh, what's this say? Ald Ald Noah, Noah, Ald Noah Zero. Zero. It's currently <laughs> set to air this fall. The trailer for this one actually looks kind of good, y'all. Um, okay. I'm going to put it in the show notes. Overtake with an exclamation point. Yeah, this this one looks this real. Colin writes, the next one does not look so real. There's also High Speed uh, <laughs> Etois, 
which certainly is very anime. Despite having backing from Super Formula, it's about a sci-fi fictional racing league, as far as I can tell. There's also no mm. studio or staff announced to be working on the project, which is usually a bad sign. There's just a future 2024 date attached to the show. This trailer looks like crap, I'll be honest. Uh, it's like if <laughs> when you hear people talking about, like, oh, I hate how much anime is just relying on, like, computer animation at this point uh, and, like, right. just really crap rigging this they're they're talking about shows that look like this uh is is kind of the vibe here uh colin continues i've also got to take this chance to shout out 1991 classic future gpx cyber formula it's mostly just a solid sports anime style show that shares some interesting lineage with gundam production staff coincidentally there's also a character named knight shoemaker despite airing at the same time as schumacher's debut in f1 it's something like 70 episodes and two OVAs long if you ever run out of content for bonus pods. Oh man, guys, oh God, when we Lord. have to crack when we have to break glass like in a, in a year's time when we're like we've just watched the only thing left is like the pure untrammeled racism can, <laughs> Cannonball 1. Uh Cannonball Run 1. I think we could just turn the Patreon shows into a watch along of this anime. It looks cool. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I'm definitely going to put those trailers in the show notes. That's, I can't wait to watch them. Stick them in the docket. Stick it in our patron. I, I mean, idea, we've had ideas. just to just, you know, to pull back the curtain a little bit here. We've had initial D on that we have. document I've for never a while. Seen that. We, we have kind of like, I keep I. sitting here being like, yeah. is this the month that we're going to do initial D? We haven't. We should read the entire, um, Manga series. That's what we should do. How I'm assuming that the joke there is it's endless. I think it's like 200. Yeah. I've yeah. seen, uh, yeah, I've seen them in a couple of shops, and it's Aren't pretty. They all. It's pretty intense. Uh, Danny, you want to read this next one? Sure. Yeah, this one comes in from Chris K. I'm an F1 noob. This is my first year following and watching an entire season. Your podcast is the most welcoming of all. So thank you, thank you, Chris. Yeah, my question is probably embarrassing, and the answer is probably obvious, but I'd love to hear you guys answer it. There's no such thing as bad questions, Chris. Send them in, everyone. Um, uh, Chris continues, a lot of the talk this week was about the removed chicane in the final turns at Barcelona. It seems to have improved the race and definitely kept the speeds up. Um, everyone complains that Monaco is too slow, so why not remove the chicane after the tunnel? I'm sure there is a legitimate reason that exists. Uh, but wouldn't removing it make the race faster and more exciting? Is it a safety issue? Love you guys and keep up the good work. Uh, this is a great question, Chris. Let me answer it in two sort of ways. So that chicane is called a Nouvelle chicane. Um, I'll talk in about its, Yeah, in Monaco. I'll talk about its history in a second because there is a legitimate reason why it's there. Um, so the issue, I'd say, just to first of all talk about what the problem maybe here is that Monaco is too slow. I think you can have slow races that are still competitive. I think the problem you have at Monaco with the current cars, as wide and long as they are, um, is that there's no place on the track that has enough of a straight section and is wide enough for there to be to, for there to be either overtakes on a straight or different sort of ways to tackle a turn. There's pretty much one racing line in Monaco, and there's a couple of places where you could cut people off to overtake. And interestingly, one of them is actually the Nouvelle Chicane, where it is. It's actually, it looks like it's, I can, I hear what you're saying. Maybe if you went faster down the port, but there's no, um, there's no turn after that. If you were to straighten it out, that, uh, that would allow you to 
get on a different line. You'd have to overtake on the track there and it's really not wide enough. So the reason why that exists is Lorenzo Bandini, when he died in 1967, this is a horrific crash that happened in Monaco. He basically died of um, uh, third degree burns. The car flipped over, caught on fire, bunch of hay bales. It happened at was what was known as the port chicane, which was the chicane that was there. It was a little bit further down. It's kind of what you can see where it kind of was based on where the sort of the fence is there. In fact, in recent, like 10 years ago, they also redid that. Do you remember there used to be a wall there and a couple of people drove straight into it? I forget who it was. Um, and they've opened it up now. So the cars instead will drive down. It's almost like an exit road, like we saw in Canada, where they miss the turn and just go straight. So when Bandini died, there was sort of calls for that to be changed for a long, long time. And it took until 1986 for them to build that um, new chicane. So the reason the chicane is actually there is for safety reasons. Because they were coming out of that tunnel, going down the hill, and then the point, imagine instead of breaking at the bottom of the hill, they were racing down to a much tighter chicane that was an extra like 200, 300 feet down the way. And it was also a chicane you could take at speed. It wasn't like the chicane in at the end of the tunnel is super dramatic. It's not really a chicane. It's kind of like a chicane and then you have to turn around like a like an invisible roundabout that's there, right? You have to like, go squidge around it a little bit um it before the port chicane was actually a fairly straight a chicane that if you hit it at speed at a certain angle you might be able to get through it so it was inviting crashes um and so that's the reason that actually exists is for safety reasons um but i think even if even if there was i can see if there was like a safer way to expand that maybe it could happen but i don't think you want people attempting it there it's such a it's such i mean that part of monaco historically has always had messed up crashes cars going into the water of course in the past as well um but uh yeah i think i think monaco's problems are kind of insurmountable i don't know what you could do to monaco to make it faster short of maybe if could you get rid of turn one the way it is would that make it possible to overtake going up the I hill think they just need to eminent domain some of the like housing <laughs> casinos and just open this You're thing right. up a little bit. And I will also say, like, where chicanes appear in F1 or racing anywhere, usually the answer is safety. Like, a chicane pops up when yeah, people yeah, are realizing yeah. we need to make this slower. Uh, I think the most famous example is there are two chicanes in the Molson Strait at, uh, at Le Mans. Those didn't used to be there. It just, it right. was, it was too unfit. Like, you could not make uh that that circuit safe with an uninterrupted straight shot down down the, the Mulsanne right. straight <laughs> with the speeds the cars would would attain like adding the chicanes basically forced the cars to check up and resume their acceleration curves and so like this is i think you know Monza as well is another case where there are chicanes there in part because otherwise the thing is a particle accelerator with with cars running on it. Right. And so Paul Ricard is another example of that in a way. It's not necessarily a chicane, but it's it's a it's a a turn that's been stuck on a huge straight for the exact reason as what you just mentioned. Yeah. It's it, it pretty much is always like if we don't do something to sort of check the momentum of these cars, there is another possible crash like nearby because like the way they design f1 courses is you're always trying to basically control crashes are inevitable 
you want to make sure the crashes that happen are the ones that you want to happen that you have like you effectively yeah. designed when things go wrong and when cars crash here's where that is going to happen and here is the way they're going to make contact with the barrier and chicanes are partly how they control that uh drew you want to read this next one Yes, indeed. This is Jorgen from North Dakota who says, In the endless battle to make races better and more exciting, there has been a thought that has been in my head for a while. Will F1 ever move to make the cars smaller? Kind of dovetailing off of our Monaco discussion. Mm. Um, It has been noted extensively that they are bigger and wider than ever before. I feel like this is limiting racing, whether it is the extreme wake the cars throw up behind them or the simple fact that most of the tracks are not big or wide enough to handle side-by-side racing for long periods of time. Formula 2, while of course being very different from Formula 1, has a ton of very exciting two-wide, even three-wide battles for much more of a lap. I feel a lot of that is due to the cars being small enough to be able to fit on the track. Is it at all possible that the FIA and the regulations move to make cars smaller? I understand that the bigger cars may allow them to be safer at the speeds of the cars as the speeds of the cars continue to increase, but maybe it's time to sacrifice speed for better racing thoughts. Um, yeah, I, well, I think you've hit on one thing for sure is that, uh, I, I think there is a, a direct correlation here with the, the speed to the size, because there is a certain, um, safety thing. Again, you know, we're back to safety here where the, uh, the crash structure, the, the monocoque, the the cockpit that the driver sits in has to be able to withstand certain forces in the event of a crash, right? And so that has to be, uh, you know, of a certain um, hardness, uh, you know, structural integrity, and that's heavy. So, you know, it's, it's carbon fiber. And thus to both have that and to be able to go at the speeds that uh, Formula One fans have come to expect, I think the natural conclusion is a car that looks like what we have. Um, I do think that the size thing would probably help, especially in cases like Monaco. Although I think when you point to, you look at something like formula two or formula three, those are spec series cars. Yeah. And so they're all very, or, uh, <laughs> theoretically identical in terms of performance. Um, and that's also not what formula <coughs> one is. So yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a tricky dance. Um, yeah, I wonder if there's a couple of things. Sorry, Rob, I'll, I'll get it edited away quickly because I'm, I'm no engineer when it comes to this sort of stuff. There's a couple of things that come to mind. One was the survival cell, as you mentioned. Two is the fact that there's a hybrid um, uh, paratrain. You know, the, the, the F1 cars are hybrids. F2 aren't, so the e, the ERS systems, uh, all that yeah. sort of stuff, yeah. I imagine, batteries. takes up a bit of space. Yeah, batteries, all that type of thing. Um, and then the other thing that came to mind with regard to the current cars, because they are bigger than previous cars, is I wonder with the sort of readoption of ground effect and the new wheels and all that sort of stuff has all that just sort of added to it a bit. Um, you know, the cars are, are, are less high in my head. I might be wrong, but I feel like the cars ride much, lo- not, sorry, not the ride height, but the, the sort of height of the car is lower. I feel like when I think about old F1 cars, they do sort of like angle up a lot at the back and that's where a lot of the meat and potatoes well, right is. So is. I wonder sure if lower. in squishing the, Right. So I, yeah. So I wonder if in squishing it down, it's sort of <clears throat> squatted it out. You know what I mean? I don't know. Yeah. This is, uh, that, that is a really good point. Like, so a, a number of drivers have actually been talking about this because genuinely, I think between the lines, nobody likes these new cars. Like nobody likes driving them. Mm. Like 
Max is happy because he's winning, but I also don't get a big sense that anybody up and down the grid really enjoys the ground effect spec. Uh, they they enjoy these tires. I don't think I don't think anyone really likes the dynamics of these cars. And so they're they're they were answering questions a few weeks ago about this, just a couple weeks ago about can we bring the weight of the cars down too? Because like this is the other part, like there's the size of them. And then there is the fact that they are kind of hulking. They tend to lurch. They have a lot of inertia. And George Russell and a number of other drivers have talked about this as a real priority for them. Like, we, the cars have gotten too big. We need to get a little closer to what they, the classic F1 form factor, so that there is a bit more of what we call proper racing. But I think, you know, Max had a, had a pretty decent response to that. Uh, he said, you know, and he's right. He said, Honestly, that's going to be a bit unrealistic to achieve because otherwise we wouldn't have been this heavy anyway, right? Uh, and then he points out also in 2026 with the bigger battery, that will weigh a lot more. So I'm not sure that's heading in the right direction. I'll always be in favor of lighting cars because I really enjoyed the 21 car more than what we have now in terms of how agile it was. Uh, now, the, now the car in the low speeds is a bit of a boat. Uh, but yeah, I think like, with the move to more hybrid systems, with just the the direction they've gone and the the safety requirements they're meeting, unwinding this is going to be really hard. Especially once you've introduced things for safety regulations, really hard to undo them. Yeah, like really hard to justify. You know what? We're actually okay, <laughs> like running the risk of gnarlier and scarier accidents uh, because the sport is suffering. I think like there are times that you can make the case that, uh, you know, you're talking about very few like really dangerous accidents happening overall, but Antoine Hubert wasn't that long ago, uh, no. you know, in, in, in slower cars. So it's something that they're, they're really sensitive to. Uh, I, I think it, it's clearly, everyone knows this is having a deleterious effect on the racing. Everyone also knows it's going to be really hard to unwind it with the technical and safety uh, regulations they're, they're operating under. Uh, last email here. Um, I, I might edit this live as I, as I go through it, but it is a fun email, uh, from Chris who wanted to share the details of their trip to Lamar. I went to Lamar last week oh, for the terrific. first time. I thought I should share my experience for anybody thinking of taking the trip for reference. I'd previously been to about five F1 races over the past decade and one formula E race. I'm pretty new to endurance racing. Having only watched the Daytona 24 on TV, uh, to last year when myself and the group put this trip together. Awesome. We arrived on the Thursday just in time to catch free practice three and left on the Sunday after the race. We were camping in one of a few campsites located inside the track. We were at Beausajour just by the Porsche Curves, which is the biggest of the campsites. Compared to other races I've camped at before, Silverstone Spa, this was more Spartan, no electricity, temporary toilet blocks, a very patchy internet, <laughs> but more pleasant. We had nice neighbors apart from the Euro apart from the Eurobeat from the drunk Germans next door. The toilets were cleaned regularly oh, and there were them. plenty of water points nearby. We were in a camper van, but I saw lots of people who had driven down who were staying the staying in tents. The the vibe of the campsite was kind of amazing. Everyone had brought their own cards to show off from the dustiest shitbox Citroens to Aston Martins and Lamborghinis. <laughs> it was kind of amazing seeing such a range of wealth brackets in such a cheap campsite. I think we paid 40 pounds for the whole week. That's awesome. A general mission ticket for the week cost 90 euro. 
And if I remember rightly, the grandstands were about 150. We had general mission, but if I went again, oh. I'd probably go for a grandstand. You probably spend most of your time roving around as there are tons of great places to watch the cars from. But it would be handy to have a, ba- a base, especially for the start of the race. In general, it was busy, but not overwhelming, with the exception of the race start. Uh, I ended up watching the race for several hours, going back to the campsite with my group for dinner, and then watching a few hours into the night before heading to bed around midnight. I got up at 4 a.m. to watch the cars at dawn, and honestly, it's an incredible feeling watching these cars as the sun comes up. By then, it wasn't busy, so I spent a few hours watching from the terraces in front of the pits. I wandered around the rest of the track as the day wore on, uh, begged some sun cream from a kindly stranger because I forgot mine in my tent, and was elated as a Ferrari (laughs) crossed the line first despite a dodgy pit stop threatening to end their race. I'll also add that the NASCAR Cup car was an absolute delight as it tore past every four minutes. (laughs) At the campsite, you could hear the general home of the cars going around, and it was comforting to hear the vroom of the Camaro knowing it was still going. In the end, it had a gearbox issue with four-ish hours to go, and they spent an hour or so fixing it. But on pace, it was something like five seconds left quicker than all the GT cars in quality trim. Uh, sorry I've let this awesome. ramble on a bit, but in summary, this was an incredible experience and really unlike anything else in motorsport. It's by far the best racing event I've ever intended. In general, the organization felt a lot better than races I'd attended at Barcelona and Silverstone. And even at the end of the race, the toilets were clean and everybody in the campsite cleaned up after themselves. If anybody is feeling disillusioned awesome. with high ticket prices, poor organization, and lack of competition at the top of F1, I'd absolutely recommend going to Le Mans at some point. With caveat, you need to be okay with camping and not getting too much sleep. That sounds magical. That's awesome. Wow. I so I boys, we're to going to France yeah. in my life. <laughs> you know what? You know why I want to go? I want to I want to go to the fairground, uh, you know, and flirt with one of the driver's mm, wives. Yeah, just walk right into that just weird <laughs> concession area. This is referencing the Le Mans movie, of course. Um, well, it was, yeah, wasn't I, the driver's uh, wife. It was the driver's that widow. That sounds good. Key difference. He wasn't just... Sorry, it was a driver. Even it, yeah, it wasn't like her husband even was out there better. rolling around and he was like macking on her. <laughs> it was more like, sorry about that time I sent your husband to die a fiery death uh, here at Le Mans. Yeah. Do you want to go on the we'll carousel? Out. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry, I'm Steve McQueen. Uh, fantastic. Thank you for the emails. Shift F1 podcast at gmail.com or F1.cool slash emails. Um, you can also hit us up on the socials using the links in the show notes. That's us around the internet. Should we take it around the world, Danny? Let's race around the world. Yeah. The World Superbike Championship is in the UK this week at the Castle Donington. Oh, yes. Yes. The Donington Park Circuit. Uh, Formula 2 and Formula 3 will be joining Formula 1 at the Red Bull Ring. Boy, oh boy. The NASCAR Xfinity Series is on the Chicago Street Course. Oh, dear Lord. For... Did Liberty uh, set this up? Hang on. Hang on. <laughs> the, well, the I'm opening YouTube TV right now to just bookmark. <laughs> I'm putting... Yes, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> um, The... Let's see. Motocross Grand Prix. Always a fun time. Where is this? The Motocross Grand Prix of Lombok in Selaparang, Mataram City, West Nusa Tenggara. He's making this up. Indonesia. Indonesia. Awesome. Love it. Uh, IndyCar is at Mid-Ohio this weekend at the Mid-Ohio Sports Car Course. 
The FAA World Rally Cross Championship is in Holias Motorstadion in Sweden for the World Rally Cross of Sweden. And we got NASCAR. Well, in Chicago, in Chicago, the windy, also the windy on city. The great, the great streets of Chicago. Al Capone, true American. Get, I'm getting that real beef at the Grant Park 220. <laughs> Season three of the bear, they should just throw it. They should blow it all up and start a a NASCAR team. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Oh man. Uh, but formula one is also on this weekend. Maybe you want to watch, uh, things kick off. It is a sprint weekend. So buckle up free practice. One, uh, starts Friday, June 30th at seven 30 AM Eastern time on ESPN two, followed by qualifying at 11 AM also on ESPN two. Saturday, July 1st, the shootout. That's right. The qualifying for the sprint and only the sprint uh, is at 6 a.m. on Saturday on ESPN2 Eastern Time, uh, followed by the sprint itself at 10.30 a.m. on ESPN. But the race, everyone, Sunday, July 2nd, 9 a.m. Eastern Time on ESPN. Good stuff. A lot of racing this weekend. Indeed. Uh, but that's what's happening in the future. Danny, what has happened in the past? On this day, June 28th, Jack Brabham started his own racing team in 1962, but it was not the Australian driver who took the team's first world championship victory. That honor fell to American driver Dan Gurdy, who won the French Grand Prix at Royan. Royan? Royan. Royan. Today in 1964. Gurney also took victory at the Mexican Grand Prix that year as the team began to establish itself as a force in the sport. After being uh, beaten to pole position for the 1998 French Grand Prix uh, by one-lap specialist Mika Hakkinen, Michael Schumacher had his revenge on this day um, when he took his first vic- when he well, sorry when he took the victory. His teammate Eddie Irvine, shout out to Ireland. Uh, finished second, giving Ferrari their first 1-2 finish since the Spanish Grand Prix in 1990, when Alain Prost led home Nigel Mansell. Imagine that, an eight-year gap between 1-2s for Ferrari. But that was back in the day where they did three Grand Prix a year. (laughs) (laughs) An eight-year gap between Ferrari 1-2s? Danny, I can't imagine it. I know, an eight-year gap. What is, what could you imagine? Could you imagine such I think you're still talking about Dan Gurney. And then you were talking about Mika Hakkinen, and I was like, damn, Dan's best days were ahead of him, I guess. I didn't realize <laughs> right? that he, like, he was mixing up with Mika. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, sorry. I like, to, I like to editorialize a little bit. Mix it up. Uh, you know? Well, uh, final thoughts heading into Austria, Danny. Um, I hope all the very sure things I said about this race end up being accurate. Um, but more than that, I hope it rains, Drew. I hope it mm. rains. Mm-hmm. Uh, final thoughts, Rob? Yeah, I'm also extremely pro-rain. And I'm also extremely pro-people <laughs> riding their race course experiences uh, with particular attention Amen. paid to how well are those lavatories being handled? Because let's be real, folks. Yeah. Like, I think mm-hmm. a lot of us like the idea of like, yeah, camping sounds like fun, but we all have that little thought of what if it's gnarlier than I want to deal with? And so it's really yeah. good to let people know just how comfortable they're going to feel while while at a uh, at a race campsite i bet rob feels this way i feel this way and i bet you do too drew 
I bet we'd love to hear if somebody went to the Austrian Grand Prix. I think we're all secretly wanting to go to that Grand Prix. I think that would be a that'd be a fun one. If you're going and you're listening, it looks beautiful. Send us an email. Send us yeah. some Wait photos. A second, though. Wasn't it last year or the year before where we got some real reports of like truly like douchebaggy behaviors in the campsites at Austria? Oh yes. Like beyond just like weird Max fan stuff, but just genuinely like that place being a like asshole, uh, like magnet. It's it's the worst case scenario. You go to visit a beautiful Austrian village, and suddenly there are Nazi flags everywhere, (laughs) and you're like, "Oh no!" I don't think that was the insinuation. (laughs) That's not what I'm saying, but I'm just saying when I have my when I have my nightmares about visiting Austria, that's what that's what it is. So. Is it a recurring dream for you, Danny? Yes, it is. Look, I'm in therapy, okay, Drew? I, I, you know, I'm dealing with my problems. Okay. And sharing them. Uh, Well, hopefully uh, your your problems can be alleviated by visiting some amazing uh, live motorsport. Uh, If you'd Mm. like to support the show and get access to all of our bonus episodes and the official Shift F1 Discord, you can do so over at patreon.com slash shift f1 have a good race weekend everyone we will see you all next week Mm